سلام خوش آمدید مرحبا اهلا و سهلا اناشنیکا خوانجامیدا سلام علیکم شراغلاد اولام بینبینیدوس زدرستوچی دبرو پاجالوچی هلو ویلکم تو آر پادکست دیالای افل سی لنگو book will always outperform a movie because okay so peter jackson that was the director right he had a visualization of what lord of the rings was he knew what it looked like in his head but his vision wasn't my vision right because when i read the books i visualized the characters interacting in a particular way right and and the best way i can describe it is a book has a particular texture that you don't get from a movie you'll get more richness out of the book than you can out of the movie It's just opinion. Well, I think with respect to texture uh, and books and movies, like even the pronunciation of names, because usually they're odd, and so they're not like normal. It's not John, you know. Um, there's, a, there's a difference in the director's creative decisions on pronunciation, and, and if the, it doesn't strike you right, um, you know, it can leave you feeling like the movie didn't, didn't quite meet your expectations. of the texture of the book that you drew from it. It's funny you bring that up because we had that. So when I say we, my daughter and I had that exact conversation about the Harry Potter books, right? Because there's a bunch of strange names in, right? Uh, like Lestrange or Lestrange, which is it? And in the, in the movies, they pronounce it one way. In the uh, audio books, they pronounce it a different way. And in your head, you're saying it a totally different way, right? So which one's right? I'm not saying that I'm a Harry Potter fan. I'm just saying my head all the books. <laughs> But I have a 14-year-old daughter, so I, I blame her. Okay, no. Let's use that as an excuse. Totally get that. <laughs> getting to know you, getting to know all about you. I'm talking with DLI FLC's Commandant Colonel James Kivett. Colonel Jennifer Saracino, Assistant Commandant, and the Command Sergeant Major Ernesto Cruz. There's been a lot of turnover in the command section over the last few months, and I wanted to give you, the listener, a chance to get to know the new DLI-FLC leadership in a more personal way. I remember when I was an E1 and an E2, the command staff just seemed so far away from what I was doing day to day. I barely knew their names, let alone what they were like. So let me just say up front, this isn't going to be a talk on the DLI-FLC mission statement or how tenure is going to look. This is just a get-to-know-you session, the lighter side, if you will. Getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. You are precisely my cup of tea. So let's start off with a quick intro. Colonel Kivit, tell me a little bit about yourself, starting with um, you're from Pennsylvania. I'm sort of from Pennsylvania. Uh, I grew up as a dependent in a military family, uh, commonly known as military brat. So we wear that title proudly. Uh, my wife is also a military brat. Uh, in fact, our dads um, graduated from the same class at West Point in 1972, and then their children came together and <laughs> in 2003 we got married. So kind of an interesting and unique story there. But I, I moved all over. Uh, the United States and Germany twice while I was growing up. We settled in Pennsylvania, so I, I kind of claim it now. Uh, I was born in Texas at Fort Hood. Many of you will know uh, exactly where that is or have been there or traveled there before or maybe traveling there soon. 
and then moved around with my father as he grew up through the ranks. He was an Army engineer uh, and retired as a lieutenant colonel at the U.S. Army War College and transitioned to a civilian professor uh, there at the War College in Pennsylvania. And my mom said, that's it. We've moved the last time. Uh, you can bury me in the backyard. <laughs> and uh, I, I went up the road to the Pennsylvania State University, joined ROTC, became an infantry officer, spent nine years in the infantry, uh, went to Operation Iraqi Freedom uh, as, an, as an infantry company commander, uh, returned from that, uh, made a career change, uh, switched to civil affairs on the active duty side, spent the next 14 years in civil affairs, doing a number of leadership positions. So in the Army, I've done, you know, kind of all the expected officer leader positions from platoon leader to company commander two times, um, battalion operations officer, battalion commander uh, in the 98th Civil Affairs Battalion, Airborne, which is uh, inside the Army Special Operations Community. And then I was fortunate enough to be selected for Brigade Command. Um, and that Brigade Command is in Monterey, California, here at the Defense Language Institute Foreign Language Center. Colonel Saracino, uh, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, uh, Colonel Jen Saracino, I'm in the United States Air Force. I grew up in Pennsylvania, born in Allentown, raised in Bethlehem. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm I'm really from Pennsylvania. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, grew up in Allentown, uh, but spent most of my life in, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and that's where you know most of my family uh, had been all throughout my my younger years. I graduated from Bloomsburg University. I had wanted to go to law school. And I was a poli-sci major. I wanted to go to law school. Um, not very good at taking standardized tests. And um, that didn't pan out for me. And my dad said to me, you know, Jen, hey, there's this guy running for Congress. And he's looking for people to volunteer in his campaign. And, you know, I never thought of it like, oh, I studied politics. I should go do something like this. This would be cool. So I did that. Um, the gentleman won the election, and I started working for him. Spent two years working in his district office uh, while I was going to grad school, um, and then really wanted to go to Washington, D.C. So when I graduated from grad school uh, at Lehigh University, I moved to D.C. and spent five years working for another Pennsylvania member of Congress. And that that's part of my story because I that's how I got the bug to join the Air Force. I spent a lot of time with the services my last year or so on the Hill, traveled around with the Air Force, the Army, did surf passage with Navy SEALs, flew on C-130s with special ops. And, and I'm like, you know, I think I really want to do this. Um, not the Navy SEAL stuff or the, <laughs> the special ops stuff, but... You know, I, I want to be part of something bigger. I also didn't want to go through the election cycle every two years again because that's just nerve-wracking. You know, your boss is up for election, and now your job is on the line. And uh, someone said, hey, why don't you join the Air Force? And I stepped up to the challenge, and here I am 21 years later. Um, I'm an intel officer, career intel officer. I've had assignments all over the world. I've worked... In, at the tactical level, like fighter squadrons, rescue units, 
spent a lot of time in the Pentagon working strategy and then had an opportunity to dabble in some leadership positions. And so had an opportunity to be a detachment commander for a space support squadron or a space support unit. And, uh, and then, you know, went to school. I probably got into too much school. Um, I don't know if you could ever go to too much school, but I'm a glutton for punishment, I guess. <laughs> and, um, but then found myself working um, as a squadron commander with the 97th Intel Squadron. And I think those, those, those two leadership assignments really set me up for, for coming here to, to, to DLI. Um, and so here I am, and I'm working with an awesome team. And, uh, you know, I've had a, a, it's been a great ride, and I've had family and friends that have supported me along the way, and it's just awesome to be here. So, CSM, um, tell me a little bit about yourself. All right. Summary. Let's go. Uh, I was born in Puerto Rico in a little fishing town called Arroyo. Little. Very little. Um, My dad joined the Army when I was four. We moved away, moved to Germany. I, I too, grew up as an Army brat. Uh, Very proud of that because that kind of shaped my way ahead. Uh, I'll tell a little embarrassing story since we're here. Yes, please. Um, I once upon a time was a cadet in ROTC, and I made poor life choices. We'll just leave it at that. I'm not going to give any details. <laughs> uh, made some poor life choices uh, because I was young and, and thought I knew everything and thought I knew better. Uh, made some poor life choices and found myself not commissioning in the Army as I had originally intended. Um, but that's failure's not the end, right? That was just one stepping stone to the next step. And I bring up that um, that embarrassing story uh, because I own it. It's part of me, and it has driven me to excel in my career because I still enlisted in the Army with a desire to achieve something, Right to get past my mistakes and get past my previous failures. So somehow, some way, the Army screwed up and promoted me to Sergeant Major. It, I'm not complaining. I, I'll take it. I'm not giving it back. Um, but having said that, I, you know, I, I came through, and a lot of people already know this, but I came through DLI twice before. I, I've been a, a, a linguist my entire career. Uh, came through in 98 for Hebrew, came back in 02 for Arabic, because at the time I was at 5th Group supporting 5th uh, spe- Special Forces Group as a uh, SADE, as a uh, ling- uh, language analyst for them. Um, here's the problem. They don't need Hebrew. Um, we, the writing was on the wall. It was uh, shortly after... Um, our entrance into Afghanistan, the writing was on the wall. We were going into Iraq. Hebrew's useless. I volunteered to come back to um, come back to uh, DLI to study Arabic. So I came back in 2002 to study Arabic, graduated in 2003, went back to fifth group. Um, and, well, the last 20 years has just been back and forth. Wholly unremarkable. Um, in, in its totality, but I have learned that 
every individual in the service, no matter what your job is, has their own part. And if you do it to its fullest, you're giving back to the whole, right? And that's how we succeed as a military. Um, and so, you know, I started out with what most people would consider a critical life failure. Um, but now I find myself considering that I've had a remarkable career in itself to where I am today. So that's, that's in short, my life story. I want to ask you about languages about yeah. when you came through. So you came back for a second time, um, mm -hmm. for Arabic. So mm -hmm. how did you, first of all, how many languages do you know now? Including English, which I have to include English because it's actually my second language, four. So uh, I'm a native Spanish speaker, obviously. Um, and then English, Arabic, and Hebrew. Okay. Do you, do you know any dialects? I didn't study dialects um, officially, um, but working in Iraq for oof, the majority of my career, you pick up some Iraqi dialect. It You can't work as a linguist in, in Iraq and not pick up some of the dialect, regardless of what you've been formally trained. Okay. So what did you learn from the first time around studying? You came back. What, um, like, how was it different the second time? Um, second time was a lot easier. Um, I was able to spend a lot of time working as an assistant platoon sergeant, uh, working with the younger soldiers because I had already learned how to study. When I came here the first time, um, I already told you, I had a critical failure in college. Um, part of that was my inability or not inability, my, I didn't know how to study and I didn't have the drive to study. So when I came here the first time, I had to learn how to study. Now I will give hands down all the kudos in the world to the Hebrew department. Um, because they, they were Tascatarians. They were, you know, they'd stay on you, um, but they'd help you, right? So the first time through, I struggled. I was on the struggle bus the entire time I was here. Uh, in and out of uh, special assistance, in and out of extra study, in and out of study halls, mentor mentors and, and tutors, just to make it to the end. Um, the second time around, it was a 180. I knew how to study. I was a little bit more mature. I'd been out in the force and I came here and I knew when I needed to be in, in the books and I knew how to balance that with decompressing my brain, which a lot of people don't realize you have to do. And so the way I would decompress is that I would go out and I would work with the, with, with the junior soldiers, which is why I volunteered for other stuff. Um, and so it was night and day knowing how to study and how to apply those studies and how to onboard what you're supposed to learn in an effective manner is hugely important to success here. Um, and I didn't know that the first time. And I found myself, I felt like I was sprinting constantly. The second time around, I felt like I could spread the peanut butter a little better, right? and spend some time doing other things other than just studying. And I enjoyed Monterey and like the, 
garlic festival in Gilroy. And I did all those extracurriculars the second time around um, that I didn't think I had time to do the first time around because I had learned how to study. It was critical. It's really interesting that you went from having a real hard time in college to going to a school that's intensely all about studying. How, I mean, did you realize that when you signed up or when you got here? It was like, oh, no. It was definitely, oh, no. Right. So um, I was an assistant store manager for Walmart. Um, Hated my life. Retail is not for everybody. And one day I went in for my annual evaluation and I quit. Walked down the street, straight into the recruiter's office and said, you got to put me in the army today. Um, Because I had a newborn son. I was married. I had to take care of my family. And I had just quit my job. So you got to put me in the army. The recruiter was like, okay, let's look. Do you have an ASVAB? Yep, have an ASVAB. Ooh, you got good scores. You want to take a test? I don't care. Put me in the Army. (laughs) They gave me the D-Lab. I passed the D-Lab. I still didn't know what was going on. He's like, how about military intelligence? I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. Can you get me into the Army today? He's like, yes. (laughs) Sign here. I signed the paperwork. And then a week later, I was on a bus to basic training at Fort Leonard Wood. Still didn't know what I was getting myself into. (laughs) Show up here and realize, oh, hell. Excuse my language. I have just walked into the lion's den because this is not what I thought it was going to be. So it wasn't, oh, what did I just do? And you made it through. Well, at that point, like I said, I, I did have motivators, right? I was married. I had a newborn son. I had responsibilities I had to live up to, right? Um, And so I did have motivators to keep pushing through, but that first time was absolute disaster. Um, I I was successful in the school, um, but and I graduated, and that's what I'm calling success, right? Even though I had a 2.8 grade point average when I graduated, right? So I struggled, (laughs) not the best of students, but I graduated. And that's what I called success, right? Because it allowed me to move on in my career. And, well, I, if I'm going to maybe, I don't believe in humble brag, so I'm just going to brag. <laughs> Being an E9 in the Army is kind of cool, right? So, you know, you can struggle, you can have your ups and downs, but as long as you don't quit and you find your personal motivators, you can make it. Yeah, I didn't know what I was getting into. I probably wouldn't have chosen this job if I had known. But I'm glad I didn't know because I've really enjoyed my job. Actually, so that brings up a point, Colonel Kivit. One of the questions was, um, what was your worst job? Tell me about what your experience was and then what you learned from it. Oh, yeah. So my worst job is actually outside the Army uh, while I was in college. Um, I had attended airborne school earlier in the summer as a cadet. And so it broke up my summer in a way that I wasn't able to get kind of a long-term summer job. So I went to a temp agency um, and and just grabbed whatever the first thing was. And they said, uh, all right, you're going to work at uh, the Ross Dress for Less Warehouse uh, in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. 
And so this is not one of their retail stores. Um, the first day I reported to work and I was, you know, still kind of like motivated because the pay was pretty high for the time. Um, people will probably laugh now, but I think it was like seven twenty-five an hour. Um, and that was like pretty good college money. Um, so I report in and, and they sort us all with the Harry Potter sorting hat for the Sarah Major and say, you're going to go do this and you're going to go do that. And so I ended up with, with John. Um, and John was like my mentor for the day. And he taught me how to make cardboard boxes. <laughs> uh, I did that for eight hours a day <laughs> for four or five days before I went to the sorting hat people and said, I can't do this anymore. Um, I need, a, I need a different job. And so they said, well, okay. Tomorrow when you come in, you're going to go with Jane, and Jane is going to show you how to tag clothes, put the price tags on clothes. And I don't know if they I, – I guess they probably still do it this way today, but um, there's a there's like a little gun. It's got a probably a 10 or 13-gauge needle uh, with, that's hollow. Um, and you shoot the little plastic widget that you're always pulling out of your brand-new clothes – um, with the price tag on it into the sleeve. But you have to take your offhand that doesn't have the gun in it and pinch the clothes to puncture the the sleeve or the hem of the dress or whatever, wherever you're putting the price tag. In doing that, because you're going to do a 1,000 probably in eight hours uh, or more uh, price tag applications, uh, you're going to puncture your finger, <laughs> you know, at least one one-hundredth of the time. Uh, so about five to ten times a day, you're going to stick that needle right through your finger. Oh and hopefully gosh. you don't pull the trigger before uh, you realize you've stuck <laughs> your finger um, because it does become mind-numbing. So I did that for another eight days. And um, about three weeks into that job, uh, my dad came downstairs and I was sitting on the couch. And he said, uh, what are you doing? I thought you had to work today. <laughs> It was about two weeks before I went back to college, and I said, uh, "Yeah, I don't think I'm gonna, I don't think I'm gonna do that job anymore, Dad." And he said, "Well, don't forget to pick up your last paycheck." And he walked out the door to go to work, um, and uh, and I just to to this day, I kind of like it's amazing the people I met there, um, the just the monot the sheer monotony of of that level of labor, um, and you know, what I took away from that job, uh, which was definitely the worst job I ever had, was that I needed to double down on efforts in school and, and make sure that I never found myself in a position where where I wasn't in control of the job that I, that I wanted to do uh, or the profession that I wanted to take on. Because I had met a few people in there, one of which that I definitely remember. Uh, and she was a – she had graduated from Bucknell Law School – um, but hadn't passed the bar. Um, and so a very well-educated person, but was stuck in the same job I was uh, as a pre-college student. And so um, it provided me maybe some of the structures and motivations that, that Sarah Major found in DLI. That, it, that terrible job that I had kind of provided me that because um, I went back to school um, in your junior year. The first semester of your junior year is the most important semester for grades uh, as far as your ROTC OML as to what branch and whether you're going to receive uh, a commission in the active service or in the reserves. Um, and so coming out of that job that summer, uh, going back into my junior year, 
uh, that first semester. Um, I took 21 credits and I got straight A's at Penn State. Um, and I, so I sent a note to my dad and I said, you know, like, hey, I know you were disappointed I quit that job, but this is what I, this is what I learned from that. So Yeah, I was going to say, I'm surprised your dad didn't say you're going to go anyway. Yeah, I just think he was probably, um, we're, we're very much alike. Um, although, you know, I would, I would say that I'm probably not as good a person or officer, or, um, you know, as smart as, as my father is definitely a mentor for me, but he probably already foresaw kind of the effect that that job was having on me and probably the way that I would react to kind of that experience uh, going forward. Um, and, and cause he, he was just, you know, prescient in that way, I think, in that he knew that not reacting would actually be more powerful than sitting me down and lecturing me about, you know, work ethic or any of that stuff, um, that he absolutely believed in. But, you know, he, he knew I, I was kind of the too smart kid that needs to learn that on your own, um, and can't be told that. And so I think that's, you know. That was my learn that on my own moment uh, in that terrible job that I had and then how I reacted going forward. So Good on your dad <laughs> in that, you know, it's it's different for everybody. It's not just one way is how you do it. So Colonel Saraceno, I thought it was really interesting. You had a different answer because you worked for congressional type stuff, and I'm sure there's a lot of egos, but you had a different answer. Explain that. Yeah, I think – I, I, I've never had a job, at least that I can remember, that I did not like. Every job had something good, you know. Even the most frustrating experiences, I look back and I know, oh, I got something good out of that, you know, I or that deployment wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And um, But I, I do remember one situation where I just, I experienced my first frustrating boss, my first frustrating leader. And I remember talking to a mentor of mine and he said, uh, Jen, you just have to chalk this up as this is how you don't want to be when you're in that, that leadership position, um, or how you don't want to be period as a leader. I mean, I was a, a, a young captain at the time and, you know, still learning my way, still de developing my leadership style. And, and I really took that to heart because I thought, okay, the only way I'm going to get through this job if it, is if I think about it that way, that, hey, I'm just going to rise above and I'm going to try to be the best that I can be. That's not how I want to be. And then maybe I could help that individual with my own behavior and my own leadership style, um, help that individual help everybody else in, in, in the organization. And so I carried that with me throughout my career. And sometimes I'm banging my head against the wall and, um, you know, frustrated with how other people lead or how they are. But I also, I walk away from those situations, self-examining, like looking at myself too and asking, okay, what could I have done different in that situation? Um, but I'd say, I've I've had great jobs everywhere, and it's just you know it's it's sometimes just the people that we work with that that make it challenging, and we have to figure out our way out of that. Getting to know you, getting to feel free and easy. When I am with you, getting to know what. 
Is there anything that you guys specifically want to talk about? Make sure to bring up. I don't know. I like the question about what's the common misconception people have yes, about folks in our positions. You all had some really good answers. Let's start with you. Okay. So I, I think that a common misconception that, that people have with folks that are in leadership positions, you know, senior leaders, is that um, our lives, we're on this pedestal and our lives are, are perfect. And it's all sunshine and butterflies all the time. And, and that we don't get them and we don't understand the things that they're going through. And I think that it's really important for the people that we lead that they understand we are human just like them. And we we have struggles. We have good days. We have bad days. Um, we have a varied backgrounds. And I I think the first time I realized this, like how people may have been looking at me as a leader was when I was in squadron command. And I started to sense that, you know, the, the team needed to see a different side of me and learn who I was because I was a total stranger in that community. I'd never been in that particular Intel, part of the Intel community before. And I sat down and I told them my story. And I said, you know, it's not all sun, sunshine and butterflies. I mean, I have a family that loves me. Um, I, I've had a great career. I've, I've worked hard to, to get where I am, but I grew up in a divorced family. You know, my parents got married cause I was on the way and then they divorced a few years later and then dad remarried and then mom remarried. And I have more stepbrothers and stepsisters than, um, you know, that I can keep track of. And I have lots of step parents that love me and, you know, but but there are other things in my life that have occurred um, that, you know, I lost a brother uh, when I was went to suicide when I was um, in my first assignment. And, you know, I got married in my first assignment and I divorced 12 years later. And, you know, and I did all of these things while I was still active in the Air Force and in leadership positions and, and trying to do the mission. And um, it just I think it just shows them that, hey, we're. We have similar types of challenges, you know. I had an airman walk up to me after that, and he said, ma'am, he goes, thank you so much for sharing that. My parents are divorced, and it drives me nuts, and I'm, I, just, I just thought it was me. I mean, they think they're alone. They really think they're alone sometimes. Like, no one else has these problems, you know, and, and we, I don't think we think about it enough. And, you know, I just want everybody to know that, you know, there is no mystic thing going on here um, with with who I am. And I don't think with with uh, the gentleman here that I'm sitting with, you know, we we uh, all have our we're human. And, you know, when you get to know us, it's it kind of takes down that that kind of scary exterior, I guess. See, so, I could, oh, no, go right ahead. Real quick. I, I just want to agree with Jen that one of the things I think, you know, her bringing out that there's a misconception that we don't have the same experiences or that we're not going through the same life actions. Last year, I was a student in a, in a military course for a year. Right. And so, um, so as a student, I was frustrated with decisions that the commandant at the war college made. I was unhappy with the bouncing back and forth between virtual and live classroom, uh, activity. And, and I think 
experienced a lot of the same emotions, albeit at a different rank and grade plate, um, that helped me, if not understand, at least empathize with, with the students um, and how they may have to react to the decisions that we make from, from building 614. Um, and so I think that's a great point to bring out is that, you know, we're, you know, not only now, but like throughout our careers, we've, and maybe more recently than you might imagine as a, you know, as a brand new initial entry student that a colonel was in class last year for, for an entire year, uh, and was in a student status that puts them almost in an identical situation to, to what you're at. Um, you know, while you're here at DLIFLC. And so hopefully, you know, I'm taking those learning points and being able to transition them to to good or better decisions um, for the student body here. I took a different approach on, on answering that question simply because um, I, I guess I was looking at it a little bit differently. Uh, I think the biggest misconception is that people work for the CSM. There's nobody at DLI that works for the CSM. It's the opposite. The CSM is the senior enlisted leader that is here to work for everyone else, right? Like this position is here to facilitate everyone's success, mission success. There's this there's this misconception that perhaps the CSM isn't approachable because going to what you were saying, Colonel Saracino, you're on a pedestal, you're on a different level, you're on a different plane and well, you're because of that, people can't approach you, right? Perhaps you're an airman basic going through class, struggling with something, and and you want to have a conversation. Now, granted, everybody has their chain of command and their NCOs above them, and 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 and. But even the CSM should be accessible. Um, whether it's at the squadron, one of the squadron chiefs, right, chief master sergeants, whether it's the battalion. Uh, CSM, whether it's me at the DLIFLC level, senior enlisted leaders, um, and so I'm going to wrap them all up together because we have the same purpose, is to facilitate success for everyone in the unit. Uh, on a professional level, right, you should be able to reach out to your senior enlisted leaders, to your senior, to your officer leadership, you should be able to reach out and say, hey, I'm struggling with X, Y, Z, whatever it is, right? Because the majority of us have struggled through the same thing at some point in our careers. So if anybody's going to be able to show empathy for what you are going through and what you're dealing with, it's us, right? Trust in your leadership, trust in, right? And reach out. Don't hide. Don't struggle on your own. Don't. Don't feel like you have to be in this isolated island off to the side that you're the only person that's going through it because we've all struggled. And so I, I would feel like I am failing at my job right? if I didn't really reach out and, and let everybody know we are reachable. We are, we are approachable. We That's what we're here for. And so that's the approach I took, a misconception that – you can't come talk to us. Quite the contrary. Right? Because there's nobody on this installation that works for me. Right? But I do work for everyone on this installation. Even an airman basic or a private or, right? I work for everyone on this installation. 
And Colonel Kivit, you had something really interesting to say um, <laughs> because I, I, th- I thought it was really good to um, think about the responsibilities that you have because looking at the breakdown of who DLI falls under is pretty wild. <laughs> so give your answer. Yeah, so I think probably the, the number one misconception about the commandant is that I don't have a boss and that my focus is down and inside the institution almost exclusively. Uh, because of that. And and in reality, I have a number of bosses from all over the Department of Defense. And my real kind of purpose or reason for being is to focus uh, my energy up and outside of the Defense Language Institute, so away from Monterey, really, generally towards the National Capital Region and the Pentagon, where a lot of our stakeholders uh, live and work. So some of the variety of bosses, so the Commanding General of the Intelligence Center of Excellence, the Commanding General of the Combined Arms Center, um, uh, the Commanding General of the Initial Military Training, you know, they all have um, some oversight over the things that I do at DLI. And then from a strictly language perspective, in our, our Department of Defense mission, the executive agent for language is the Army. So I have a direct link to uh, the G357 uh, director of training at the Pentagon, who's the Army's senior language authority and the executive agent for language for the Department of Defense. A lot of my time is spent up and out to make sure that DLI and the, and the great professionals here that run the down and in piece and the day-to-day activities of the schoolhouse Um, have the resources and the authorities that they need to continue kind of our relentless pursuit of excellence uh, as the premier language school uh, in the department. Um, Do you guys have anything else to answer, anything else to say? I want to know what everybody's fad is that they want to (laughs) bring back. Okay, so... I have to tell you, we came in here to practice. One of the things that you said was um, what everybody else said, basically, was bell bottoms. Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> but it's like they've already come back, you know. Bell bottoms have come back, and um, hula hoops are back, I think, and swatch, all that fun swatch stuff. Watches. Yes. Oh, <laughs> swatch watch. So let's start with you because uh, they answered actually something different. So go okay. ahead. So, so yeah, I really, I think all the things that I really want to have come back are already coming back, like bell bottoms, et cetera. But um, I think the two things that popped into my mind, I used to be a tennis player in high school and I wore canvas tree-torn sneakers and I can't find them anywhere. Of course, that got me Googling and now I think they are out there, but it's just not the same. Um, and then phones attached to the wall. Why? Why? Because I, I am tired of <laughs> smartphones. I'm tired. Like sometimes I just want to kick it old school, lay on the floor with the phone in my ear, the cord like hanging down, like reminiscing, you know, my childhood, talking to my friends, and then nobody can reach me when I'm not at home. You know. Okay, that's a fair answer. Yeah. I yeah. I, so I just remember sweeping stuff off the table with that cord, so that's why I was giggling. Um, <laughs> But, okay, so not what you guys really answered, because we'll get to that in a minute, but what is, um, what trend, like an actual literal trend? A trend? I'm ready if you're not, sorry, mate. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, the trend I wish would come back is uh, standard transmission vehicles. Um, That is, um, I think, the sign of a real driver. Um, It requires you to concentrate on the act of driving, and it gives you the thrill and feel of actually being in control of the vehicle um, instead of the vehicle being kind of like a bumper car. 
Uh, and I think that's actually what you get with automatics generally is a bumper car. And then you add in Colonel Saraceno's smartphones, and what you have is a disaster waiting to happen. <laughs> but if you have your hand on the stick shift and both mm-hmm. and, a, and your left foot on the clutch, you don't have time for a smartphone or text. You're in the act of driving, and you're paying attention to the road, and you're having a great time in that vehicle. And so I desperately need um, – standard transmission vehicles to come back before my children uh, enter the vehicle. Um, the truck I drive right now is the first automatic I've owned in my entire life. Wow. You finally caved in this time. Yeah, I broke, unfortunately, because there was there were just no standards available. Uh, you can't see it right now, but um, <clears throat> the producers behind the window were cheering as soon as you said that. <laughs> Um, That's a good one. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you that. That was a good one. So I'm I, I'm I'm gonna go super geeky, right? I wish we'd bring back floppy disks. Um, this Interesting. Is, and this is why, right? Um, back in the day when we had, and I I should, probably shouldn't say back in the day, right? Like it really hasn't been that long. It really hasn't been that long. But you know, we used to have five and a quarter and three and a half inch floppies. They had megabytes of capacity on them, right? Not gigabytes. Now you have a nano whatever that has a terabyte in it, right, of space. But what that's created is, and, and again, super geeky, right? What that's created is sloppy programming um, because – and, and coding is ugly and, and because they have the memory space, they don't go back and it is not a precise program anymore, um, things were so simpler, yes, but more precise, right? Programmers knew that they had a finite amount of programming space, and if they had to make something work, they figured it out, right? Um, when the when the uh, space program first started, th- those modules had less programming and, and memory space than your average calculator does today. And I'm not talking about super smart calculators. I'm talking about like the TI version, you know, scientific calculators that can do a few calculations. Right? So imagine, uh, so yeah, floppy disk, right? So that we can maybe get back to better, cleaner, more productive programming, right? To make things work the way, because half the reason we have, you know, uh, critical errors in our computers is because the programming is just sloppy people have gotten lazy over the years because they have they feel like they have infinite um memory space so, so let's I, go back to floppies <laughs> I, so actually i have heard uh, a friend of mine was really into photography and um he was saying that that is something he dislikes about dslrs because um digital cameras because there's so much space so you're more lazy about getting the picture you're not like must get the right one make sure everything is perfect because you only had you know however about 24 chances it's been a while (laughs) since it was filmed but um yeah no i totally totally get that in a in a less geeky way but Uh, okay so um you both actually answered very very similar your what trends you were hoping to come back. So, Colonel Kewitt, I'll let you start. So, uh, I took this question d- differently than I did kind of just a moment ago, and, and I looked at societal trends, I guess, maybe um, less than kind of fashion or, or a 
a material solution or trend. And so first I answered that I'm definitely going to sound like an old man when I say this. So acknowledged. But the art of personal responsibility and compromise, um, I'd love to see that trend come back. And, uh, you know, I say trend kind of tongue in cheek. But today's world, it's very easy to try to shed, like, responsibility for, for actions that they take. Um, you know, whether it's in our government or our personal lives, you know, the ability to compromise and not stay on one extreme end or another of any kind of situation or item or decision, um, whether it's political or or in the schoolyard. Um, I even see it sometimes in the discussions my sons bring home from high school, the kind of the, the polarizing ends where the folks don't meet in the middle anymore. Sometimes I even wonder kind of like if we set folks in a room today, like could they come up with the U.S. Constitution because we've kind of lost this ability to take responsibility as an individual. Uh, this is my fault. I'm responsible for fixing it. That's the trend I'd like to see make a comeback. And yours was similar? Okay. Yeah, so it, it was in a similar vein. Um, um, I, I wish empathy would come back. And and the reason being is, like, growing up, whether it was in school or my parents or whatever, I was brought up to listen to other people and understand where they were coming from. Didn't That didn't mean that I had to accept what they were saying, right? I didn't have to accept it as truth or as fact, but... By showing empathy and understanding, right, then we we could communicate clearly and freely without potentially hurting each other's feelings. Because now you understand, I understand what you mean when you say X. And understanding is not acceptance. It's not. That's a trend, a societal trend that I wish would come back. Because when I was a kid, everybody knew what empathy was. It wasn't explicit. It wasn't overt. Everybody just did it. It was part of the way we were brought up to listen to one another, try to understand one another, to be able to put ourselves in the place of the other person and at least understand. And I wish that would come back. We have definitely gone away from that. Looking back um, on my time on Capitol Hill, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not there now watching it, but was close enough to see it over, you know, the last several years. But I think I witnessed some of the last times that we really worked together and compromised and listened to one another to, to get things done. And we've become much more divided, less sympathetic, um, you know, not, not listening less willing to compromise. Everyone is, you know, putting their foot down and I'm right, you're wrong. I think that's a, that's one of the reasons why I, I stay away from watching the news these days. I read the news. I don't watch the news because that kind of thing gets me very, you know, frustrated. So I'd, I'd agree with both of you. We need, we need more of that. So I actually, I have to ask this question. Leo, the photographer, and I were talking, and he was saying that he thought in the 80s that, you know, there was, it seemed to be kinder and people working to get along better. But what I'm afraid of is that it's going to be like um, my parents saying the 50s and the 60s were better because people were kinder and trying to get along. And so is that what we're doing? Because I agree well, with you. I don't know, because so, you know, you asked this question as Part of our preparation is like, what is the best advice I'd ever gotten? And I think it links kind of the discussion that we just had. Um, and it was one my mother told me uh, as a very young child that if I didn't have anything nice to say, not to say anything at all. That's part of being empathetic. 
that's part of not attacking each other and being able to compromise, you know, and that's part of, you know, taking the personal responsibility to do that, to actually follow through on that advice and say, I could say something here as a comeback, but it's not productive. And so I won't. That's just kind of, a, I think, part of that, like, was the 80s nicer? Like, maybe. And maybe it was just because we didn't have a platform like social media to broadcast the not nice yeah. thing that I used to keep to myself is now out there in the ether, yeah. right? Because because it was just too easy to anonymously, which is, you know, not anonymous, but, like, get on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or any of the platforms and shoot kind of venom into the because I won't get tracked back to me and you know there's there's a lack of accountability there the 80s weren't nicer <laughs> yeah, um, that, that I mean let, let's just put it out there the 80s weren't nicer societal norm was again if you didn't have something nice to say don't say it and unless you were in the public eye you really weren't given a public venue to spew detritus. You know, when, when the whole AIDS thing started, right, lines were clearly divided. So the 80s weren't nicer, but it's how people engaged each other that was different than how we do today, right? Because in private circles, people were expressing their, their opinions. But societal norm required that if you were at work, right, you towed the line. Because that was the societal norm. Now it's be, now it's on its head where the societal norm is for you to spew whatever crazy thing pops up into your head. And believe me, I've got plenty of crazy things rolling around in my nugget too. But I'm not going to put them out there, right? Because just because I think it doesn't mean it's right. Just because I think it doesn't mean that somebody else is going to agree with me or that it's even productive to put it out there because I got it, right? And so now we're in this society where everybody gets offended by everything that is said, and rightly so, because a lot of people are saying things that perhaps they shouldn't be saying. So were the 80s kinder, nicer? No. But it was a different societal norm than what we have today. Haven't you noticed? Suddenly I'm bright and free. 